0: If you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at uh, the book of Romans uh, really throughout, um, well, as distant memory serves me a long time. Anyway, we're, we're continuing to look at this series, and it brings us to chapter 9. If you were with us last week, uh, we sort of reached a crescendo. Uh, it was an apex, really, in the book of Romans. God guaranteeing that we will persevere in His love, not because of any strength that we might have, not even because of our own will, but instead because of His commitment to love us well. Uh, We can live with absolute confidence, no matter what life throws our way. God has called us and actually has assured us of our glory. What does Paul mean by that? That life would be as it should be, as it was intended to be. A life full of freedom and joy, and it belongs to us. It's ours if we are Christians, and if you at least were with us last week, you know that all of those promises, they sound um, not just great, but actually unbelievable, especially given our own experiences. In chapter 9, Paul is wrestling with the question, but if God calls someone, does He really bring them all the way home? And that would immediately bring to mind, at least for the Apostle Paul, the Jewish people. If you know anything about their history, they've been called by God. And that is specifically the issue that Paul will be dealing with in chapters 9 through 11. His concern, his heart for the Jewish people. Just as sort of an aside and a heads up, Paul is dealing with ethnic Israel. And what I mean by that, he never, ever, actually, the New Testament never deals with the idea of national Israel, and that certainly is the case here. In fact, he knows nothing of national Israel. He's only concerned with ethnic Israel. Look with me as I begin to read in Romans chapter 9, and I'll read the 29 verses that are printed. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, whose God over all forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy. On whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom He also called Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your letter from your servant Paul. Uh, We pray now that you would be with us as we look into this letter, that you would speak to each of us. For Father, we come here this morning needing to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. On November 9th, 1938, the Nazi forces smashed windows and set fire to approximately 1,400 synagogues all across Germany and Austria. They destroyed thousands of Torah scrolls. Many of the acts demolishing the scrolls were deliberate and made in public as a spectacle. In one small town, they were sent rolling down the street as Hitler, youth rode bicycles over them. In Berlin, the scrolls were burned in a major public square. As Torah scrolls burned in the synagogue yard, some men wearing the robes of rabbis and cantors danced around the fire. If you know anything from history, this became known as the Night of Broken Glass, a night really marked by just passionate hatred and intense and pervasive persecution. One author has noted that this was very purposeful. It wasn't just random, at least for the Nazis. For their imagination to flourish, and actually to flourish among their people, they had to cut off everything uh, that even remotely hinted or looked like something that would be Jewish, including the Hebrew Scriptures. This symbolic act of burning the Old Testament scrolls uh, would liberate uh, Germany, according to them, from the constraints of Judeo-Christian morals, ethics, and beliefs. The writer goes on to say this, this burning was a project to construct a new Germany where Christianity would know nothing, would owe nothing to the Jews or to other Christian Europeans. The enslavement of Europeans depended on the destruction of the Jew first. And on February 1944, the Reich press announced The Jewish question is the key to world history. It may for us sound like that's a long way off, and yet if we read, if we know anything about what's occurring really throughout our world, that anti-Semitism is on the rise, virtually everywhere. And no one can argue the fact that it flourished in Nazi Germany. But what is also apparent is that it flourished within church history and that the church did nothing uh, to prevent it. What's even more tragic is chapters 9 through 11 were used and have been used as adding fuel to the fire or sort of promoting this idea of being anti-Jew or anti-Jewish in its orientation. We need to see at least the problem that Paul is dealing with as he begins to address in chapters 9 through 11 and then the mystery that he outlines and then our response. Just first In verses 1 through 4, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 4. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promise. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry. The benefits that Paul outlines from being a part of God's people, being a part of the Jewish people, are enormous. He outlines them this way, that first is theirs is the adoption, that they would be able to approach God, that God would approach them on very intimate terms is the way he describes it. Theirs is the divine glory. In and through the history of Israel, what you see is that God's glory was not just seen, but actually experienced by them. It wasn't a vague concept for them, so to speak. Paul enrolls that theirs are the covenants. For us, that means very little, but for them it meant everything, that they had an intimate relationship with God through which these covenants, God would bless them. He would heal them, make them flourish in ways that they had not known. They had also received the law. Rightly understood, it should have taught them that their relationship with God wasn't something that they could earn. That healing wasn't something that they could achieve that it was something given to them, actually. If that were not enough, Paul unrolls that theirs is the worship in the temple. What does that mean? Is that they heard, not just heard about God's intervention, but they actually got to see it weekly. The sacrifices that they witnessed. That there was an awful price to pay for their brokenness. Or as one writer said, that we're constantly messing up and that Our world is constantly messed up in in response to that. Theirs is the promise. Great entitlement and huge promises made to them. The whole world, the, the richness of the promise would be this the entire world would be healed through them. If you know anything about them, that's just incredible the nature of that promise. And then Paul says that theirs are the patriarchs. It's a long list. That we could give that their history is one of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. All nations have great heroes. There's no doubt about that. But these were great leaders that God actually spoke through them to His people. And if that were not enough, Paul sort of caps it all with this idea that, that theirs is the ancestry of the Messiah. Often it's overlooked, but that Jesus was Jewish. For Him to become a human, He had to come through a particular race and a particular culture. Imagine the honor that this invokes. That this Messiah would be like them. And what I mean by that, someone that's easy for them to relate to. Someone with the same history, the same background, the same culture. And if we know the story, what Paul wrestles with is in spite of all of that richness, all of that heritage, all of that wealth, everything that all of that pointed to, what you find is just rejection for the most part. It is completely baffling. It is totally confusing. The Messiah finally comes. The climax of all of these privileges the culmination of God's work, He shows up and in this, this disregard at best, complete hostility at worst. How could this happen? How could it be? Did did God's call fail? That's what Paul is beginning to wrestle with. Or maybe another way to phrase this is, uh, did God fail? We don't have to look very far to ask that question. For some of us, it only needs to look just beyond our own experiences and our own family situations. We wrestle with the same kind of question. Does it, Has God failed? Uh, just the agony in our own personal lives, relationships decimated and devastated, and we wonder where in the world is God in the midst of all of this? And it really directs us to what, for many of us, will be a really difficult portion of this passage, and that is the mystery that God begins to explore, or that Paul begins to explore. And it's actually found in verses 6 through 13. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel. The way Paul begins this section, his answer to the question why this rejection is simply this, the promises, the privileges, are not automatic. That no one is entitled to them might be another way to describe it. Paul capsulates it and begins to unroll it with the idea, not all Israel are Israel. He wants to define what it means to be a part of Israel properly. And he gives two examples to sort of unroll where he's going to go with this. The first is this. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be blessed. But if you know the story, Abraham had two sons. He had a son through Hagar, his servant, and a son through his wife. And according to the story, it was through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the promise would go forward. Isaac was accepted by God. Some have sort of supposed, or at least you can hear the argument behind what Paul is saying here, maybe it was because Hagar wasn't Jewish and that Sarah was. Maybe it was because they had different mothers. Well, then Paul goes into the next example. Um, twin sons born of the same mother out of Rebekah. They had the same father. Both of them physical descendants of Abraham. And only one inherited the promise. Only one was a child of the promise, Jacob. Now why is that Paul goes further? Before the twins were ever even born... The choice to bless Jacob was prior to their birth, before they did anything. Uh, This is directly counter to the idea that God sort of looks down the halls of history to see how these sons would turn out. If that were not enough, Paul sort of ups his game in verse 12. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Before they had done good or bad, Paul's point. Why do some of Abraham's descendants love God and some don't? Verse 11 is Paul's answer. Before the twins were born, had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. The only difference, according to Paul, is because of God's election. Literally, what he says is this, because of God's choosing. Or maybe a better way to understand that, because of God's pulling out Now, if you're at all wrestling with this idea, the question is, why is that? And it's simply the nature of mercy itself. Verses 14 through 18 sort of unroll for us this morning. uh, The very center, the very core of God's character, who He actually is. That your relationship, my relationship, their relationship with God is based on mercy and nothing else. If you know anything about mercy, mercy is undeserved and it's totally free. Mercy can never be obligated or required. To sort of counter Paul here and say it's unfair for God to show mercy to some is actually completely contradictory. What that means is that it's not mercy at all. God owes no one, according to Paul. No one has a claim to mercy. Mercy. No one can say, I'm obligated, you're obligated to give me mercy. If you are, then it's not mercy at all. Verse 16, it it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It doesn't depend on what we want, it doesn't depend on how hard we try. The only thing that matters is is God's mercy, and if that were not enough, Paul gives one more example, and he sort of ups his game one more time. Uh, He takes this one step further when he says this, God will harden whom he wants to harden. To say that this is difficult would be a gross understatement. Paul enrolls for us a case study in the person of Pharaoh. The story goes that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but also a part of the story is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Hardening in the Bible is simply God giving someone over to their own desires, their own stubbornness. Instead of opposing, instead of countering, instead of offering opposition, God simply reinforces them in their position. He allows them to go their own way. Paul enrolls for us the idea of the potter in the clay. God made us and can do whatever He wants. He enrolls this and says, look, it's that God bears with us with great patience. He never gives people what they actually deserve. And then, if that were not enough, Paul adds that they've been prepared for destruction. Just as an aside here, Paul never says who prepared them for this. It's not symmetrical. There's no way to make this It never says that God prepares them for this. It does say that the objects of mercy were prepared by God, but instead objects of destruction are prepared by themselves. The story is told of a mother who had a son who was in Napoleon's service who was about to be executed for his war crimes, actually for desertion. The mother asked Napoleon for a pardon, uh, but Napoleon pointed out that the man's offenses were so egregious uh, that justice demanded execution. Her response to this was simply this, I don't ask for justice, the woman replied, I plead for mercy. Napoleon objected, but your son doesn't deserve mercy, and the mother said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, uh, Paul's point is simply this. You're one only because of mercy and nothing else. Many, many of us get wrapped up in the idea that God does not extend mercy to everyone. is somehow that doesn't look unfair. What's stunning is this, that God would extend mercy to anyone. See, God comes into our lives and he pours out his mercy. And he makes us what he wants us to be. How do we respond to that? Um, what do we do actually, with that in verses twenty four through twenty nine Paul sort of enrolls for us just the reversal that what matters is not physical descent. Uh, listen, what matters is not your parents. that would be the best way to phrase that, uh, but god's calling. Paul turns in verse twenty four to the matter of the prophets, and what he does he proves that God absolutely keeps his promises. But He does so with surprising, astonishing, unbelievable reversals. What do I mean by that? It's the history of God that He calls people who are not His people His people. Throughout history what you find is that God blesses those who don't deserve it and that no one could have predicted it would be a better way to describe it. God is utterly free to pour out His mercy on anyone. The stunning reality is he rejects those who think they deserve it, those who think they're entitled to it. Now, what does that produce? First, it produces hope. What do I mean by that? You can never look at anyone the same again. Why is that? Because you can never predict what God will do. And secondly, it makes you humble before anyone. The only thing that you have this morning, if you're a Christian, that others don't have is that you've been shown mercy. It completely obliterates the idea of arrogance. Sort of a sneering. Listen, if you're a non-Christian this morning, you've met people just like that. Um, I, can, I can just say that without any apologies. Why? Because I've met people just like this. What it means is this. Those are people that deeply don't know mercy. Mercy. A few years ago, a university neuroscience, Lucy Brown, and her research team distributed flyers across several campuses in New York to recruit participants in a brain imaging study that they were doing. The flyers only had one sentence, and this is what the sentence was. Have you just been rejected in love but can't let go? That was it, the only requirement for the study. Soon enough, Brown recalls she had college students who were asked to bring a photo of their loved one crying in the brain scanner. The brains of the forlorn study subjects looked like drug addicts, according to her. She concluded, in retrospect, it's not surprising, the same area of the brains that were active in the brains of cocaine addicts were active in people who were heartbroken, looking at a picture of their former lover. She writes this, we crave the other person just as we crave nicotine or pain pills. You want to just be near that person. You're constantly thinking about them. We even do dangerous things sometimes to win them back. We don't eat. We don't sleep. That's a great description of Paul's response in verses 1 through 3. We go full circle here. The way the writer, the way Paul describes this in verses 1 and 2, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. That doesn't really capture what's going on with Paul. This is heartbreak, vividly disseen. Paul, in the depths of grief, one writer said this, Paul is like suffering from severe depression. Some of us know what that's like. Everything that happens, every word you hear, every sight, colored by the fact that something has gone wrong. Something that can't be forgotten. It's a dark shadow. Paul says that I would give all of this up if it meant that the people I love would embrace Jesus. It gives you a glimpse, not only into his heart, but actually in the heart of God. That there's no overriding sort of indifference in Paul. Uh, there's never a coldness. Instead, what you get is this overriding concern. His people, instead of embracing the Messiah, had completely, for the most part, rejected What you see in Paul is no ivory tower discussion about God's mercy. Instead, what you find is this heart longing. If you're a Christian this morning, do you have that kind of longing? Does it show, actually? Do your friends, your neighbors, your family members know that you long for them? Or instead, do what they experience is indifference? Anger, disapproval. For some of you, this idea, this chapter, is just a wonderful philosophical discussion. Something to bat around the table, um, to just be immersed in the details. If it is, could it be that you've missed, that you don't know mercy? This morning, if you've not made a faith commitment, no matter what, I want you to hear that this God is a God of reversals. He's a God of mercy. If you think for a minute this morning that you don't deserve it, the good news is you're right. Um, Neither do I. But what that actually means is that you're close. You're so close. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that out of Your great mercy, You take us as Your own. Not because of our heritage, not in spite of our heritage, or in spite of our history. And you bring us into your family with great enthusiasm, with great joy, with great excitement. Not because of what we could do, not because of what we could do for you, because you delight in us. May that resonate with us this morning. And yet, Father, for those of us that have used this, as a tool, would you break us, we pray. In the rich name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We come down to this table. This table is not the table of our church. It is not the table of our denomination. It is the Lord's table. It is a table of mercy.